This is Pendust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. When Michael Fallon was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer of the throat, he burst into tears and wondered how he could possibly tell his wife the devastating news. This was followed by uncomprehending rage and radiation treatments in the belly of a massive, whirring machine that focused a beam of invisible light on his tumor. Yet, he wanted to save something of value from what was happening to him, to meditate on the things that gave him the courage to endure the pain and fear and to share inspiration with others who must face and endure challenges of their own. This memoir combines two stories from his essay collection, There Is Something I Must Tell You. The essays narrate and reflect on his diagnosis, treatment, and recovery from stage 4 cancer of the throat. Part 1 of this story is also titled, There Is Something I Must Tell You. Part 2 is titled, The Mask and the Green Dragon. Michael Fallon is a senior lecturer emeritus in the English department at the University of Maryland. He is the author of four collections of poetry, and his essays and poems have appeared in numerous literary journals and magazines. His innermost ear is always turned to what the Irish call the music of what happens. This story is copyright 2019 by Michael Fallon. This recording is copyright 2020. Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. There is something I must tell you. Written by Michael Fallon. Read by Milton Bagby. Part 1. Sometime during the day or night, many months before I was aware of it, I was changed forever. One cell in the lining of my throat, very near my vocal cords, had decided to begin replicating itself soon outpacing the healthy cells around it, and I was divided against myself. A malignant mass began to grow, a part of me, and yet also my enemy. All it wanted was to live, to go forth and multiply. But this meant that my own death was growing fast within me, the lethal cells busily manufacturing themselves, nourished by my body and born on the stream of my own blood. I had noticed some changes in how I felt, both physically and emotionally, that spring of 2016. As the days grew warm, as I put in the screens and the air conditioners, and my wife and I made plans for our gardens, I slept more heavily and did not have the energy I thought I should. I felt mildly depressed. But was this because I had less energy? Or did I have less energy because I was depressed? What a slippery thing self-diagnosis is. P. 
pity the poor mind, trying to figure out not only what is wrong with the body, but what might also be wrong with itself. If I get depressed, can I still count on my own judgment? If I feel exhausted, too, is there a pattern here? Or am I just trying to justify the fact that I don't feel like doing anything? But wait, some of these issues are undeniably physical. Am I being hypervigilant? A complainer? A hypochondriac? In April, the saucer magnolia outside my study window erupted in pink flames. And in May, the dogwoods, the redbuds, exploded up and down the block. While the air was fresh with spring rain, I wondered where my sadness was coming from. Could it be burnout from my job as a senior lecturer in English? Finishing out the semester seemed more exhausting than usual. Maybe the endless streams of papers had finally worn me down, and I began to think that I should be glad that retirement was not too far away. But I also noticed that, at times, my eyes inexplicably filled up with tears. There was a sting in my throat when I drank wine. A dull pain often throbbed in my right ear, and there was a slight change in my voice. It had grown deeper, seemed to me to have lost some of its mellow quality, and had a harsh rasp to it. I first noticed this on a tape I had recorded for a poetry competition. I thought that possibly the changes in my voice were just a result of growing older. Then I also noticed a lump in my throat. Nothing I could see on the outside but there was a thickening just above my vocal cords that very slightly affected my swallowing and made it harder to clear my throat. Did all these minor annoyances make some kind of a pattern? What could that pattern mean? How long can an agitated mind wall off its worries before they begin to leak out? My wife, Ruth, noticed my constant fatigue and heard me complain more vehemently than my usual grumbling as I fought with myself to finish grading the piles of exams and essays. Should I tell her? I wondered. But just what do I say? Why worry her when I'm not sure what's wrong myself? Maybe all these annoying symptoms will go away once the pressure's off. Maybe I should wait until I feel more sure, or at least until I have a theory. The one thing I was certain of is that some changes had definitely taken place in me. I simply did not feel the same. I kept trying to figure out how all these symptoms fit together. Sinusitis, that sneakiest of infections, was a possibility. I could not count the times I suddenly found myself feeling depressed and wondering what in hell I had the right to be depressed about and what I had done to make myself feel so exhausted, when soon enough I had a throbbing headache. Then it was obvious. Oh, yeah, right, I've got sinusitis again. I had problems with infected sinuses for years and wondered if my constantly draining sinuses had caused the changes in my voice or the swelling in my throat. So I made an appointment with my ear, nose, and throat doctor to take a look. Yet somewhere hovering beyond what I was willing to actively consider was the knowledge that, though I had quit six years ago, I had smoked more than a pack of cigarettes every day for nearly 45 years. This pattern of symptoms might finally add up to cancer of the throat. The white-smocked physician's assistant, who looked down my esophagus that day, did not say a word, but immediately went to get the doctor. 
after some uneasy minutes behind the closed door in that mostly empty sunlit room, the doctor came in, followed by the assistant, and took his turn. He straightened up. They looked at each other. Then he looked back at me and said, Let me make an appointment for you. I don't specifically remember those blank moments six days later when I sat in another examining room by myself, feet dangling from the raised examining chair before the surgeon came in, but I know they were charged with fear, determined resistance to fear, curiosity, and a sense of unreality. Is this really happening? Has the shadow now fallen on me? Am I to be one of those people marked for death, pale and hairless, a jacked-up sack in a wheelchair? What would it be like on the inside to get seriously ill and die? And then there was the airiest glimmer of hope that maybe this wasn't really happening to me. Mr. Fallon, we're so very sorry to have alarmed you, but there has been a terrible mistake. Your lump is just a lump, that's all. A plain old lump in the throat. Happens to everybody. But benign is a word that I could not dare to say to myself. The strongest voice in the turbulent echo chamber of my mind had already decided that, most likely, I had throat cancer. The best-case scenario was that it might be in an early stage. I was already braced for impact. The door opened, and a youngish, clean-shaven, pleasant-looking man in a white lab coat and a stethoscope stepped into the room, not a jot of gray in his dark brown hair. Probably a father with young children, I thought. First the cops, now even the doctors, are getting younger and younger. The doctor introduced himself, shook my hand, and said, Let me have a look at your throat. He motioned to the scope, a tall machine on wheels parked next to me. It was mounted with a TV-sized X-ray screen, with a tiny camera attached at the end of a long black tube-like wire. He sprayed something that tasted bitter and had a dull sting up my nose, and then proceeded to push the tube up my right nostril and down into my throat, while looking at the image on a screen off to my right and behind me. Out of the corner of my eye, I could see dark smudges, a surreal kind of puppet show moving on a gray-white background. I felt the camera stop two or three inches past my jaw. He lingered there a significant moment, and then withdrew the scope. Let's talk, he said as he pushed the screen away, and I continued to sit nervously in the examining chair. I try even now to recall his words through the thick fog of emotion in which they were received. Even if the exact words are lost to me, I remember how gentle and kind his voice and expression were, in contrast to the merciless words I reconstruct here. There is a tumor just above your voice box. You have cancer of the supraglottis. Before I could even think, I burst into tears and wondered aloud how I would possibly tell my wife I had cancer in my throat. She would be totally blindsided. She had no idea any disaster like this was coming. At this point, he explained, he couldn't say at what stage the cancer was, or if it had metastasized, which I quickly translated to mean my death was a possibility. I would have to get a biopsy and a PET scan for that, but as it stood, I had two options. One, I could have surgery, and they could cut out the cancer, then would need some radiation therapy to be sure the cancer was gone. 
This would also mean that they would have to remove my voice box, and I would need a prosthesis and speech therapy to learn to speak again with the help of a hole in my throat. Or two, I could have radiation and chemotherapy, which would mean there was a good chance that I could keep my normal voice, though it could be altered by scar tissue. It's also possible that the radiation could damage my voice box, and it might have to be removed some time later. Or I might have trouble breathing and swallowing because of scar tissue and need further surgery as I grew older. He then scheduled the biopsy and the PET scan for the following week. All this sudden knowledge was like a blow to the head. You are dizzy and know you are hurt, but are not sure how badly. I very well might die, I thought, and if I live I could lose my voice, the voice I've used all my life to make poems, to read them to audiences, and to teach my students. That seemed like another kind of death. As I stood up to leave, I felt top-heavy with the sudden weight of what I had to carry home with me. Rehearsing and rehearsing the terrible sentences as I drove, I imagined myself sitting in the kitchen with my wife, ever watchful for the right moment to say what I had to. What moment could that be? But when I got home with the news crushing my insides, my wife was out. That hour sitting waiting for her to come home in the aching, empty house was one of the worst hours I've ever spent. But the weight of all that time calmed the words, compressed and simplified them. Please sit down. There is something I must tell you. When I put the dates for the biopsy and the PET scan on the wall calendar in our kitchen, I did not think of it. But now, as I look at the sequence of appointments, scarring week after week on our calendar, I see that the month of May had a painting on it by J. M. W. Turner, Burial at Sea, a beautiful but somber painting where one is immediately drawn to the two 19th-century ships broadside, almost parallel in the center of the scene. One is a sailing ship, nearly in silhouette, its masts of black sails set starkly against a pale morning or evening sky. The other, a steamboat, almost obscured by veils of dark smoke from its engines pouring out of its stacks, or possibly its hold. At first glance, it appears to be on fire. It is a striking and melancholy scene. In that period of my life, when I wasn't sure if I would survive, and everything that was supposed to save me looked like disaster in another shape, I felt much like a ship set ablaze and left to drift. On what precarious shore would it run aground? Or would it only drift and burn to sink somewhere beyond the horizon? Too often with Ruth and me, in that no-man's land before I knew whether I was going to live or die, or what suffering lay ahead, at breakfast, at lunch, at dinner, at bedtime, my cancer was the subject, the context, the subtext, and the woolly mammoth in the room. How do you keep the conversation from circling back to it? the silences from filling up with it. At first you can't help but speculate. Then speculation goes into overdrive and drives you crazy. I told Ruth not to say that the tumor was most likely benign because I just couldn't think it. It would only weaken me. Besides, I couldn't think benign without thinking malign, malignant, and considering the opposite extreme. Were these going to be some of our last precious days together? 
No more speculation, I said one day. It doesn't help. After that we were silent about it, soldiering through until we could know the nature of our enemy. I remember the maze of corridors my wife and I had to be guided through, and the featureless white room we ended up in the day of my biopsy. There was just enough space for a large TV-like machine, an examining bed, and the four of us, two nurse technicians, my wife, and I. The machine was similar to the one I had seen in the surgeon's office, with a large white screen. The nurse technicians put a gel on my neck and then slid a small mouse-like device up and down it, searching for the tumor. It all showed up on the screen. The inside of my throat, my tongue, and the tumor were all living shadows there. My wife was amazed at the miracle of it, but I was still a bit subdued and dazed with worry. Finally, they did a biopsy of the lymph node by running a very long, thin needle down into the lymph node on the side of my neck. Inside the hollow needle was a tiny fragment of flesh, which would help reveal my fate. When I showed up for my PET scan a few days later, the young, dark-haired radiologist showed me to a small, box-like room with only a chair and television where I could wait while a radioactive sugar solution had a chance to find my cancer. He was cheerful and chatty, and explained how the PET scan worked as he searched for the right vein in my arm. Cancer cells evidently love sugar, and once injected into me, the radioactive sugar will circulate in my bloodstream throughout my whole body until it finds the hungry cancer cells. They light up far better in the scan because they will consume up to ten times more radioactive sugar than normal cells, and the radiation will fatally reveal them. The scan will establish if my tumor is malignant, if it has metastasized, what course my treatment will take, and if I am likely to live or die. I have a vague memory of some whirs and hums, sliding slowly headfirst into a huge machine and down a white plastic tube, which seemed like the type used to examine victims during alien abductions, but not much else. I suppose my intense anxieties burned away the memory. I had planned to prepare a new course on the American sublime in literature, to explore the most thrilling exalted passages, or, as some say, that nexus where beauty and terror collide, during the summer and teach it in the fall. I had planned to teach half-time for another year and then retire. I had planned to finally finish all the poems, essays, and books of poetry and non-fiction I had started. I looked forward to writing those I imagined. I had planned to spend my retirement loving my wife, having more time to travel to Ireland and Italy, and revisit Paris. I planned to listen to music, walk, tend our gardens, and watch the seasons turn. How ordinary it sounds, even to me, but I had worked hard and waited and hoped so many years for it. Not only did my future begin to crumble before me, but the future of my country seemed to be undermined, the foundations falling away. All around me was the cacophony of the presidential election, the noisy and bombastic ascent of Trump, 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 the drumbeat of disaster, a cancer, if ever there was one, in the body politic. I could not help but think of the parallel. Something destructive and malignant had gotten into the hearts and minds of so many that rational discussion and facts 
went out the window. There was only paranoia, suspicion, conspiracy, a mass of lies, prejudice, and hatred growing into an angry tumor, and the disease was infecting our democracy and infecting our relationships with each other with distrust. It seemed to parallel my own cancer so that I was most of the time as worried about my country as I was about my own cure. My heart rose and sank with the fluctuating poles. While I waited for the results of the biopsy and scan, it seemed cancer was all around me, inside and out, and I was full of free-floating anxiety and pent-up anger. Normally, I'm not quick to anger, or easily annoyed, but now I was a bolt of lightning looking for a lone tree. I remember one day I pulled onto a parking ramp at the hospital with my wife. As I got onto the lot, there was a car backing out right in front of me. I stopped to let the driver out and to get the convenient space. Then the guy behind me leaned on his horn and kept leaning on it for what seemed a full minute as the car in front of me slowly, timidly backed out, allowing me to finally pull into the space. The driver then nosed up behind my car, and in a move meant to intimidate me and my wife, his bumper almost touching mine, blocked our path with his car. I got out, slammed the door, and turned deliberately, ominously to look at him. True to the horn blaster type, he had thick black-rimmed glasses and was short, plump, and bald. I could see it dawn dimly upon him that I wasn't in the least intimidated, but on the contrary, angry to the point of joy. After all, I had a semi-legitimate reason to blow my stack. When he saw my posture and clenched fists and read the look on my face, he knew he had made a mistake. Come on, man, he said, as if I should regret the tiny inconvenience I had caused him, and drove away. Good thing, I thought, watching him go. When I got my breath, I was scared for what I might have done. I knew I was a walking cauldron of anger, but I didn't know the source of it, or sources, I should say. An angry mind does not deal well with complexity. I was angry because I felt helpless and didn't know what was going to happen to me. My life had suddenly changed, and I didn't know yet how it was changed. I was angry with myself for smoking all those goddamn cigarettes, that I had been addicted to cigarettes, and had deceived myself about the likely consequences after so many years. I was angry with the world for placing such a temptation in my path. I was angry that cancer existed, that there was such a thing as human suffering, that I was suffering, that my precious consciousness might abruptly cease, that death was built into life from the beginning. I was off balance and wounded, and I wanted to strike back at something solid, something I could smash with angry words, with a good kick, an uppercut, or a right cross to the skull. I was angry because I knew my anger was impotent, useless, and self-destructive. I was angry because I thought my anger was selfish and yet somehow justified because cancer was killing me. And what is cancer? Just a collection of cells gone berserk. Maybe my cancer was a kind of rage of the body at being subjected to all those poisons for all those forty-five years. I was angry because I could not release my anger except to snap at my wife much too often when something she said set me off, and then feel guilty and even angrier with myself for that. 
Still, the big, hot, inflated ball of anger remained within me, its thin rubber skin stretched to the breaking point. In those weeks, before we had the results of the biopsy, the scan, and the diagnosis, I wondered if the life I had imagined for myself was at all possible. Was it altered, destroyed? Was the future I dreamed of just a pale mirage on the horizon? And so my life drifted off course. I was that burning, drifting boat. Part 2. The Mask and the Green Dragon It appears to be some kind of bizarre fencing mask, or it looks as if a human head had been driven into a net face first, with such terrific force that the net had retained the shape of impact, an impression of my features, with a wake of gray net trailing behind it as if blown there by a fierce wind. Its purpose seems to be to allow the subject to see and breathe while protecting the head and face. But protecting him from what? It's not made of steel mesh, which would keep out a projectile or a blade, but merely hardened plastic. Because the threat the mask would protect me from is an invisible one. I remember the day it was shaped. A gray mesh with diamond-shaped holes was draped over my face. The mesh was plastic, and it was soft and hot like warm clay. It was molded to fit my face by two pairs of hands, as if they were making a delicate sculpture. It must fit my face exactly, so that when it dries and hardens, my head will be locked in place. It must not move up or down, or to the right or left, so when the radiation is precisely beamed at the tumor in my throat, my head will always be fixed in the same position, time after time, so that the ray does not stray over innocent flesh where it might sear my tongue, my vocal cords, or scar my windpipe, and the radiant beam I cannot see will pass harmlessly over me like the invisible sword of an angel. The mask must be securely fastened over my face every morning, Monday through Friday, for eight weeks, between 9.15 and 9.30, at the radiology department of GBMC, the Greater Baltimore Medical Center. When I have come through the outside doors, up the zigzag corridor, and have mounted the stairs, I will say hello to the very pleasant woman at the main desk. Being pleasant and kind is part of the professional compassion that is cultivated here by everyone. Doctors, radiology therapists, nurses, and staff. When I say it is professional, I don't mean it is in the least artificial. It is real, necessary, and effective as they direct, minister to, and treat the cancer patients who daily present themselves in endless procession, month after month, year by year, at various stages of the cure, on their way to living or dying. At the main desk, I swipe a white plastic card to verify that I have arrived. I walk down the hall to the men's locker room where I take off my shirt and put on two blue-green hospital gowns, one opens in the back, the other in front, and I go to wait my turn at the so-called green machine, a giant metal machine in a high-ceiling room. It is like a dragon in its cave, directing and focusing radiation 
on the cancerous cells to be destroyed. The waiting room reminds me of a small country train station. It is a square about the size of a living room, half open on two sides. Patients, usually no more than two or three, sit in their gowns around the perimeter like travelers, making small talk as if waiting for a train, sometimes with relatives to see them off. They sit and fidget, read magazines, talk of their treatment. The veterans advise the rookies. Most of the men are bald and white-haired, like me. Most of the women are gray and elderly. Today there are two other men besides me. One is white and one is black. Both look older than I. But once in a while there is a younger man who looks to be still in his mid-thirties, or a young woman who has lost her hair. How terrible! So young, everyone thinks. And someone finally says, after that patient has gone, I recognize the black man. He's been here before at the same time. I know he's ahead of me in the treatment cycle. He says hello, asks how I'm doing, and I tell him I'm not feeling any effects yet. He nods slowly, knowingly. I ask how he's feeling. All right, all right, he says. But there is something in his posture and bearing. I know he's been suffering. The other man looks at us, listens to our exchange, and simply nods a hello at me. There is a sense of quiet, low-key camaraderie among us. We're each at a milestone in our journey, and we're all headed, at least today, for the same destination. For my first four weeks, the whole process was imperceptible. I couldn't see it or feel it if they just whirred the gleaming cylinders, flashed the red lights, and added a few buzzes and clicks, and did absolutely nothing more, I wouldn't have known. It was a daily ritual whose results were completely invisible. I had to take it on faith that something was really happening inside my body. The last four weeks, I had been told, are when things began to get tough, and when one of us at last finishes radiation therapy, he or she gets to ring a bell outside the waiting room like a bell at the end of the fifteenth round of a boxing match. Everyone in the near vicinity, mostly patients, therapists, nurses, all gather around and cheer. I will cheer the black man on one day as he completes his treatment. He turns out to be a Navy vet and rings the bell in two quick dings. That is the bell that signals the captain is leaving the ship, he will say. Being halfway through my therapy in four weeks, I too will get to ring the bell. The irony, I know now, is that as our therapy truly progresses and the cancer is being burned out of us, we will get weaker and sicker, knowing but not quite understanding that the worst is yet to come. Some playfully perverse part of me can't help but imagine the room as a setting for a Beckett-like play, a sort of waiting for Godot or better, waiting for the green dragon. But then they call out my name. As they lock the mask in place over me, I can feel it tight on my face. So tight sometimes it holds my eyelids shut as it presses against my forehead, face, and chin. The radiology therapists then ask if everything is okay, because some patients get claustrophobic with the mesh clamped so tightly upon them. Your body can contort and convulse, twist and kick all at once but your head is clamped tight to the board beneath you and is going nowhere. It is a terrible time for a persistent itch on the ear 
or at the end of the nose. And, of course, that rascal, the imagination, often conjures one up just when it's impossible to scratch. The therapists then leave the room, and it is empty save for me and the green machine. Now I hear the lull of their voices next door. I lie with my back to what feels like a diving board, not quite wide enough to rest both my shoulders on. One shoulder blade or the other always slips off. I look up into the sudden branches of palm trees and the high drift of white cumulus cirrus clouds stretched across the ceiling. A deliberately calm blue sky is all around me. The diving board rises, shifts backwards. Great gleaming metal cylinders slide into place above me, lining me up correctly for the beam of invisible light that will slowly burn me, curing me week by week, saving what is left of my life. There are long beeps, which are probably the radiation zapping the tumor. I can't see or feel anything, but I imagine a laser-like beam slicing into a tumorous mass. The machine shifts. The gurney slides forward and raises me up beneath the metal console with three red eyes in it. I assume each emits a beam of red light for precisely repositioning me. As the gurney shifts and the machine whirs, and the radiation is focused on the tumor again from another angle, I imagine I'm floating in air and try to elevate my thoughts and think of the sublime, a kind of antidote I've promised myself so I don't dwell too much on the war that is going on inside me. Sometimes I drift off to sleep. Sometimes I'm in the mists between sleeping and waking and imagine a warm ray of sunlight falling on my exposed neck. Hear the sounds of a river. Float on my back and slide slowly downstream the poplars and sycamores gliding by overhead. What is the difference between the sublime and the beautiful? I wonder as I ride the clear current, the sun gleaming and sparkling between trees, flashing across the waves. A woodpecker hammers, a blue jay makes its harsh cry, and a distant mockingbird cackles and trills, hidden high among the branches. The day is hot. The water is cool silk on my skin. Edmund Burke, the 17th-century British statesman, orator, and writer, said that the sublime must have an element of terror in it. So must a truly sublime experience combine the beautiful and the terrible? I ask this as I drift, the roar of rapids somewhere out ahead of me. I'm swept swiftly along. Downstream I know there is a series of waterfalls. The river churns white around sharp black boulders and trundles over moss-stained cliffs to drop into a vortex of rock and churning foam far below. As I drift ever closer, the static thunder drowns my thought. I am deep inside the green machine. I begin my descent as the board floats forward, then down in a series of whirring steps. I have been high up and far away. I'm not sure for how long. Now I feel myself being lowered again into the room, the gurney sliding forward. I try to keep my thoughts on this high plateau in my imagination, because otherwise I might think about the bloated, misshapen cancer cells multiplying within me, the radiation searing the tumor, burning and shrinking the malignant mass of cells. I pray that none of them survives to pass into my lungs or liver, floating serenely downstream on the river of my blood. I hear voices again, 
and the hands reach and unlock the mask. I look up into a pair of faces, the green machine and the high ceiling and the palm trees behind them. Are you okay? They ask me. Yes, thank you, I say. And I am sincerely thankful for my cure. But I also know that a malignant deadly force is still inside me, and that the radiation too is lethal. It is what killed Marie Curie. It is what blackened Hiroshima. Two murderous forces have been set against one another. My body must contend with them. To be cured of cancer is to wrestle with the angel of death. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.